Are you a Saul or a Jonathan or a Sonathan or Jal? And what could that possibly mean? See if you can figure out before I tell you. <laughs> yeah, you can leave it up there just to torment people for a minute or two. Those of you who may not know me, I teach at Denver Seminary, and I teach in the New Testament department, which means that an assignment like tonight's puts me on a level playing field with everybody else. Since we're in the Old Testament, I had to do my homework, couldn't just uh, pull out old notes. But uh, one of the interesting things that comes with my job is the opportunity from time to time to speak in other places, and usually they ask me something about my home church, usually what it is. And, and so I have sort of gotten used to a certain pattern. As soon as I say scum of the earth, uh, obviously there will be snickers and strange looks. And then I'll try to describe a little bit and tell a little bit of the story. And then sooner or later, somebody asks, so why would a seminary professor go to that kind of a church? Well, the answer is because Larry Pombianco did it to me years. No, just kidding. Um, I once had one of my colleagues who said, uh, is this um, your delayed adolescent rebellion? And the more I think about it, he may be on to something. Because um, I was a pretty compliant kid. Not, not that I didn't want to rebel, I just didn't dare to, because um, I was kind of a wimp, and I knew what would happen to me at my house. In fact, uh, I don't know whether you think I qualify for scum or not. Probably compared to some of your stories, I don't come close. But there were plenty of times growing up as a kid when... If I had known that the Bible said scum of the earth someplace, I might have, uh, I might have adopted that, that phrase. Um, I always wanted to be popular, but I never was. Um, the popular kids, at least in the 60s, were uh, good looking or uh, athletic or uh, socialites or in the right clubs, and I, I tried hard at sports and got to be mediocre at a few of them, and that really made me happy because I was terrible at everything else. But there was one thing I could do well, and that was get the grades. But I learned that doesn't make you popular. Before anybody had invented the words nerd and geek, I was both. Um, those of you who are my age, all three of you in the room. Um, no, that's right. Larry's wife's here. We got four. Um, you, will, you will perhaps remember the term egghead. 
Um, I have no idea where that came from. I never Googled it. Um, but, but that was nerd and geek before those words had been invented. And so, yeah, I, I felt like scum until I met a group of kids at a high school campus life club that my best friend invited me to. And for the first time in my life, I saw more than just two or three people act very genuinely like they were taking an interest in me and cared about me. And I was a sophomore and some of them were actually juniors and seniors, which never happened least not in my era. And uh, that's really what, uh, to make a long story short, eventually brought me to Christ. What could that possibly have to do with Saul and Jonathan, or Sonathan, or Jal? A long time ago, in a month far, far away, two weeks before Easter, we were going through the book of 1 Samuel. And we left off smack dab in the middle of chapter 13. That's where we're going to pick it up. And now you've got two puzzles to figure out before I tell you. A, what's the crazy title all about? And B, what does my story have to do with anything? 1 Samuel chapter 13, beginning at verse 16. Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with them were staying in Gibeah, or Geba, in Benjamin, while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turned toward Ophrah in the vicinity of Shual, another toward Beth Horon, and the third toward the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboim, facing the wilderness. And if you're like me, those names mean absolutely nothing. So we need a map. Behold, a map. Now, not all those place names are on here, but the ones that aren't are irrelevant. In fact, you really only need to memorize two lines on this map. The line with the arrow going from Giba. They said they had this 20th century device called a laser pointer, and it might actually work here or not. There it is. Wait for it. So memorize this line which if I could hold it straight, it wouldn't shake, but I can't. Memorize that line and memorize the dashed line. Geba is where the Israelites are camped. Michmash is where the Philistines are camped and they're fortifying all these other ways so that the only hope for the Israelites is to hold their ground or to go backwards and cede territory to the one Canaanite group that they were never able to completely rid from the land and always was their nemesis over several centuries. 
Got that memorized? There will not be a quiz. Good. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plow points, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plow points and mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goads. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son, Jonathan, had them. Okay, go back 3,000 years. Imagine you're in Middle Earth. or early in the Iron Age. And the Philistines have the highest technology of the day. They have mastered swords and spears. The Israelites aren't dumb. They begin to develop this technology, but in previous raids, the Philistines figure one of the ways to keep the Israelites at bay is to, if they see a blacksmith shop anywhere, destroy it. And, well, they could have been so cruel as to never offer any services to the Israelites at all. But when there's a way to make a shekel, sure, we'll charge, what was that extortionary amount? Two-thirds of a day's wage. If you want to have your sickle sharpened, a third of your day's wage, if you want to have your plow points sharpened, and sooner or later, in order to farm, people had to do it, but they'd wait until the blades were duller than some of us wait to get our cars greased and oiled. <laughs> no, did I admit that? Um, and so two men, the king and his son, have decent weapons. What did the rest of them have? What did you have in Middle Earth? Clubs? Slingshots? Smooth stones? Not so smooth stones? Bows and arrows? Things lit on fire and hurled long distances? Boulders dropped from a height. You might even have a battering ram or a catapult, but that's not going to do you very good if you're not trying to take over a walled city and you're out in the open fields. The Israelites are at a serious disadvantage, not to mention we left off a month ago in verse 15 with 600 troops down from 3,000 in verse 2. They were getting beat up, and a whole chunk of the army doesn't even want to hang around to see if they're going to lose their life. The odds are not good. So, on the day of battle, two well-armed individuals and a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. So one day, Saul, uh, Jonathan, son of Saul, 
said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. We have a remarkably well-preserved photograph of the preparation for this battle taken a few years ago. The terrain has barely changed. Oh, there are a lot more people and homes and not necessarily on the same sites as the ancient towns, though sometimes there are. But you remember those two lines, the, uh, the solid line? Well, here's ancient Geba or Gibeah. And here is the valley, the pass of Michmash, going up like this. The area that was fortified was probably this hill, and Michmash itself was probably on top of this humpy hill. So in the shadows, in the valley, is the one and only direct route from the Israelite camp to where the Philistines are split up. If you don't want to go that directly, you're going to go through the valley and around a real long ways around. Or you're going to come through this canyon and that's going to take forever. And sooner or later, people will see what you're doing. You like following the bouncing red dot. 20th century did have some fun toys. What is Jonathan thinking? We met him a month ago, in the beginning of chapter 13, Saul's son, who attacked the Philistines and basically, humanly, was the one who won the battle, but dad got credit for it. That ever happened to you growing up? <laughs> yeah, it did to me. Never mind, that's another story. Jonathan says to his young armor bearer, Jonathan himself can't be more than in his 20s at this point, so the armor bearer may be in his late teens. And if we like, we can imagine these two in the prime of life with great physical fitness and stamina. They're going to need it. But there's still only two young guys. And Jonathan says, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. To do what? Raise the white flag? Surrender? Um, play let's make a deal? Or is this a suicide campaign? Is this uh, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza of Man of La Mancha, crazy guys going out to tilt at windmills? Or do they belong in the next uh, installment of the Avengers? Or somewhere in between? About all we know is the ominous words, but he did not tell his father. That's seldom a good thing, no matter what kind of father you have. 
And Saul has demonstrated himself to only be partially trustworthy thus far in the book. We keep on reading. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migran. In the ancient world, uh, famous, large, well-known trees were often landmarks and a place for the center of a tent city. So I don't think we're to find any special meaning in the pomegranates. With him were about 600 men. Yeah, that's where we left things off. Not very promising. Among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod, a priestly robe. Oh, Good for Saul. He brought a clergyman with him. You know, you need to have the religious side of things covered. Eh, maybe not. Ahijah was a son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phinehas, son of Eli. Dum, dum, dum. Fast backwards to the beginning of Samuel. Eli is the aged priest who does some nice things for Samuel, but his sons are horrible. Great grandson. Well, he could be completely different, but barring any information otherwise, this is another ominous note. After all, Samuel is the leading cleric in the land. Why isn't Samuel here? Well, because the last time he showed up, he showed up seconds before the deadline that he had promised to show up, and Saul didn't wait and got too eager to win a battle, and so he won the battle and was told because he didn't obey, his sons wouldn't inherit the kingdom. Samuel doesn't have nice news for Saul when he shows up. So, of course, we're not going to invite him. We're going to invite Eli's great-grandson. Ominous notes 3, 4, and 5, or whatever numbers we're up to. Yeah, that's enough of that. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Sina. I don't know why they named cliffs and I don't know what the words mean. And they may mean something, but as far as I can tell, that's irrelevant to the story. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other to the south toward Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind. His armor bearer said, go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on then. We will cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay, stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign. The Lord has given them into our hands. Huh. Well, 
One thing we can say, Jonathan's armor bearer is loyal. Kind of like the student I once heard jokingly say, I'd follow you to hell with a squirt gun. Now, whether he's in his right mind or not, I'm not sure. But uh, it's time for another picture. Wait for it. Ah, end of the summer, drier time, photograph from the land, not from the air like the last one, but it is the same area. You can't see that valley and that roadway, but you may be able to see that there's a gap here between these hilltops, and so that Giba is just off the screen here. And the road going to Micmash, going through the pass of Micmash, separates this rocky area from the one further on. And Micmash and the fortified area would be back here. Now we can start to see Bozes and Sina. These very rugged cliffs. And you can't see that there's a big precipice right here and a deep canyon down in between. What does Jonathan have up his sleeve? He says, let's go up to the outpost of the Philistines. Let's show ourselves. And if they say, wait there until we come to you, that's a bad sign. That means they're probably going to come armed. And there's going to be enough of them that we don't stand a chance. And there won't be any element of surprise. And we'll just be heading home. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up. Huh. We don't have to climb up to just follow that roadway. This will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. I think the map is right in suggesting that what Jonathan had in mind was somewhere here down in the valley, he calls up to the man at Micmash, fortifying the outpost, and if they say, come on up, He's not going to just continue straight up that road. He's going to turn around and make them think that they're not coming at all. But later, maybe at dusk or maybe at dawn, he knows the area. He's a native. It's the Philistines who are encroaching. He is going to find a way, and it's going to be a rugged crawl sometimes with his hands and his feet, but he's going to find a way down in the canyon and up again to this little plateaued area that's no more than about half an acre. And seriously, if you're a Philistine, how many people are you going to put there? 
well, you know, we've got to have a hundred guys lined up right along the edge here because you never know when those Hebrews are going to practice their mountain climbing skills. And no, of course not. They're not thinking about anybody climbing up to us. And so we continue. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they're hiding in. In case you're curious, that wasn't a compliment. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan, his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. That's a paraphrase. The Hebrew is very cryptic there. It basically says, uh, come up and we'll show you a thing. Probably like our expression that's a little bit uh, wordier. We'll show you a thing or two. <laughs> Teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet. You don't do that if you're taking the main highway. With his armor bearer right behind him, good old Tonto. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Now, obviously God is with them, but I don't think we're meant to see this as an actual supernatural intervention. I mean, good grief. It wasn't that many weeks ago when we were shocked in the news about a junior high boy in another part of the country who managed to injured 20 people just with a single knife from his mother's kitchen. The act of surprise, if nobody is expecting an attack from the cliffs, if this is at a time when everyone is relaxing and complacent, I don't know how you do the YouTube clip, but in, in my imagination from all the shows I've watched, I imagine that, you know, one of them comes and grabs the guy's mouth so he can't scream, and the other one puts a dagger in his side. And, you know, you just go around, and you do a couple at a time, and before anybody can find out what's going on, you've lopped off 20. Not bad. Especially if we look at one more picture. Ooh, the steepest part of the canyon. Different time of the year, different time of day, different angle, different color on the ground, but it's the same place. That little half-acre spot we looked at is right there. So, I don't know where the, the trail was, <laughs> if there was one, or if they forged it out. There, there would be places, so they tell me, I haven't been to this exact site, where you could climb sight unseen. Now, God intervenes. Still not miraculously, but with a miraculously timed 
miniature earthquake or at least a tremor. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. And that makes sense because the ancient Canaanites, the ancient pagan peoples were very superstitious. Any kind of natural disaster, any kind of, of strange, uh, unusual natural forces were seen as a bad omen from the gods. Oh, my gods, they're punishing us, they probably would have been saying. And, and, and they begin to turn tail. Interesting. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, muster the forces and see who has left us. He's not dumb. He knows he didn't start the battle. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor-bearer who were not there. Of course it was. They hadn't told Dad. Dad always finds out. Dang. Saul said to Abijah, bring the ark of God. Well, now that sounds very spiritual. Except no king had the right to command anybody to move the ark of God anywhere. He's treating it like a, a magic spell, a talisman, a rabbit's foot hanging from your rearview mirror. While Saul was talking to the priest, Eli's grandson, probably working with what were called the Urim and the Tumim, Two stones, one black and one white, put by someone else into the large front pockets in this priestly vestment. And then you randomly pulled one out, and one meant yes, and one meant no to whatever question you were asking, like, should we go into battle? While Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Wait a minute. Things are getting out of hand. We have got to get our troops over there. Don't wait for God to tell you what to do. Ouch. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines. <laughs> Every war has its mercenaries that switch sides when the shift of balance of power changes. But now they see the Hebrews have a chance to win, so that's part of why everybody's turning on each other. Who had been with the Philistines and had gone up to them to their camp, went over to the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan, when all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim, oh, those other 2,400 guys, they didn't go home. They just kind of hung out and hid out. Let's see what's going to happen. We're too scared to fight, but we're too curious to go home. Oh, well, now it's safe. Now the Philistines are on the run. Let's get in the fray and get some of the plunder and the credit. And yeah. 
And so, with everyone in hot pursuit on that day, the Lord saved Israel. And the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon, beyond the map we looked at at the beginning. A great victory. Hallelujah. Three cheers for Israel. Three cheers for Saul. Hmm. Oh, maybe one cheer for Saul. Maybe three for Jonathan. What have we just seen and what the heck does it have to do with us? We've seen Saul, the king, the head honcho, the guy in charge, who is good at one thing, winning battles once they start to go his way. He can finish off with the best of them. And he's good at giving the appearance of being religious while doing so while not actually following God's laws. Hmm. Ever know anybody who was a fairly acclaimed Christian leader, public figure of some kind, always a veneer of religiosity over everything he did, but scratch and not far below the surface it's really all about doing it my way and hoping God blesses or maybe you've known a Jonathan willing to let somebody else get the credit even though he deserved it willing to be brave against all odds, but not so ridiculous that he's just suicidal. I remember uh, a pair of authors in the 90s, and I still hear their perspective cited from time to time, maybe through some of their followers. That, that used to say something like this, don't attempt anything for God unless it's so great and so beyond your ability that he would have to work a miracle for it to happen. Well, what's wrong with that? That sounds very faith-filled. What's wrong with that is that most of the time people try it, God doesn't work a miracle. If he did, we'd stop calling them miracles. Start calling them everyday occurrences. There is nothing in Scripture that ever commands such an approach. Take risks, maybe. Have faith, absolutely. Stretch yourself, push yourself beyond what you're sure you can do, sure. But... Give God a way to overrule your plans if they're not his will. Don't say, the Lord has told me. Unless you really did hear a voice. And it wasn't your dad. Or Adam. Since he always sounds like God with his bass voice. 
Learn to tell God from Adam. That was for my friends who like those kinds of dumb jokes. Nobody is perfectly a Saul. Nobody is perfectly a Jonathan. Can we at least try to be a Sonathan? Mostly Jonathan, even though we might have to admit that at times there's a little Saul. And if that's too demanding, can we at least try to be a Jaul? Okay, so most of the time you're Saul. Let's start and add in a little bit of Jonathan. And then maybe you can graduate to a Saulnathan. I don't know. The, the, uh, the ways you can put the letters together are not quite infinite. Where do you need to be more of a Jonathan? In relationships? Sticking to what you know is integrity of living by God's standards? Even when it's not what you really want to do? Dreams for present or future work or career? But I know he wants me to do X. And if I just dream big enough, he will bring X to pass. Maybe. Are you giving him a way to change your mind if that's not his will? Are you, meanwhile, taking some risks and acting on faith in smaller ways and seeing how he responds? Are you just sitting back and waiting for a Jonathan to start it all so you can come in and finish it up and claim the credit? Or what about God in your life more generally? Is it, I'm going to do what I want to do, but, you know, I'll still come to church, and then everybody will think I'm seeking after the Lord's will. I'll even get involved in a small group. Then they'll know I'm really holy. At least one of the spellings of holy. I don't know where you are tonight. I know that becoming a Christian didn't automatically change that in my life. Oh, it did change my dreams of being a high school math teacher into becoming a major university professor, to be an evangelical voice in a liberal environment and help change the world. And God never opened those doors. He sent me to a, a good place, Denver Seminary, which I assumed would be a stepping stone after a few years to a better place and then to a better place. And here I am 28 years later. And what's turned out to be a very good place, but I didn't know it. About 12 years ago, a friend of my mother's from childhood years now living in Santa Barbara, came with her daughter, who was my childhood playmate. 
up until about age 10, to hear me talk once, and they even took me out for dinner, and we got caught up over years and years, and my mom's friend said as we were disappearing, (laughs) going our separate ways, Denver Seminary, huh? I guess I always imagined you teaching at a Harvard or Yale or Princeton. I mean, you were really bright as a kid. Put in the screws and turn them. About the time I probably would have accepted uh, an invitation to climbing the academic ladder in the late 80s and early 90s, I went under a series of eye surgeries that began with a detached retina that uh, led to a couple of years of uh, considerable pain and limitations on reading and uh, use of computer screens. And then about five years after all that settled down in 96, I contracted a pretty serious repetitive stress injury in my shoulders and arms so that for a couple of years, With laborious physical therapy and rehab, I had to dictate most of what I wanted to type and rely on other people to do that for me and was able to write very little. And if I had gone to any place more high-powered than where I am now, they probably wouldn't have had the patience with me, and that would have been the end of that career. Now I'm as healthy as I've been in years, except for the knee that just waits to some year be replaced. (laughs) Not quite how I imagined it. Oh, God has been incredibly gracious. I would never have met you wonderful people. I would never have been scum. But it's not what I thought 20 years ago. God had to show me that I had limitations, that I couldn't just dream as big as the sky and expect him to do what I wanted. But on the other hand, he made a way for me at each stage in the bleakest times, reminding me that if I acted in little ways on faith when I least felt like it, that he did provide. Through a whole cadre of wonderful friends, the seminary and elsewhere. I am no better than a Sonathan, and maybe I'm more like a Salnathan. But maybe we can keep making progress, keep trying to wipe those SAUL letters out of our name and be more like the young guy with confidence that God can save, whether with many or with few, but it might not be his will. So let's give him a way to tell us and then act upon that. Whatever that means for you, will you pray with me about it? Father, you alone know what is weighing most heavily on the hearts of each person here. 
whether it's a situation with housing, with employment, the relationships with parents, with kids, boyfriends, girlfriends, fiancés, spouses, or whether it's uh, trying to decide if uh, they're really going to live for you and not just themselves. Would you speak to each of our hearts as you only can as we listen and respond and sing and mean the words that we sing and go from here to a week that has a little bit more of at least one letter of Jonathan's name in it. And we'll thank you incredibly for that. In Jesus' name, amen.